Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir, where every week we talk to leaders who have set their sights on a problem and are working to solve it. Over the past few weeks, as part of our rebuilding series, we've connected with leaders from across education, media, and hospitality, and we've learned how they're reimagining and redesigning their work to make sure that everyone feels a sense of belonging. Today, we're joined by someone I'm lucky to call a friend. He's a colleague and a mentor and a Share Our Strength board member. It's Chip Wade, president of the Union Square Hospitality Group. In his more than 30 years in the industry, the restaurant industry, Chip's seen all sides of hospitality. He's earned a culinary degree from Johnson & Wales University, an MBA from the University of Texas at Dallas, and he's worked in restaurants of all sizes during his tenures at Darden Restaurants, Legal Seafoods, and the Carlson Restaurant Group. Chip's a champion for expanding black leadership in the hospitality industry and fostering a culture that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive, not only for employees, but also for partners and guests. As a committed servant leader, Chip is also passionate about helping children, youth, and those in need. We're incredibly grateful to have him as a Share Our Strength board member. And he also sits on the board of Youth Villages, an organization I know well and admire greatly, which is dedicated to helping children with emotional and behavioral problems and their families live successfully. We'll be right back after this. We have a lot to talk about. I'm excited to jump in. So Chip, thanks for being here. Good afternoon, Billy. Absolutely delighted to join you. Uh, what did I, I, I probably left out some important things in the abbreviated version of your resume, including I think that you're the father of two. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate and blessed. Uh, my wife and I, Pam, have been together for well over 34 years now, and we have two great sons. They both live in D.C. The oldest is um, 24 and the youngest is 22 and graduating from college this month in, in December. So, Wow. Congratulations. Thank that's, you. That, that's, you know, when I think about my own uh, resume or whatever you would want to call it. Uh, that's my number one accomplishment. I should have, and you probably feel the same way. I probably should have started with that, not, not ended with it. It is, it is. And it's the number one role that I have. And it's, it's a role that I absolutely adore and love and, and get so much excitement about of mentoring and coaching uh, my sons. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, I mentioned that, you know, 30 year career in your case in the operational leadership end of uh, restaurant groups and culinary community. Uh, where did it all start for you? I don't even know that story myself, so I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to hear it. What got you into food? Sure. Um, so my very first job, like many young uh, teenagers at the age of 15, I got my first job in fast food. And so I got a job at a Dunkin' Donuts restaurant. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And so I walk into this Dunkin' Donuts and the, the manager who at the time was 33 or 34, I was 15. Um, and I got hired to sweep the parking lot, clean the toilets and, and mop the floors. I was raised by a single mom. And so this gentleman became a big brother and a mentor to me. And over the remaining years of my high school years, um, he gave me more and more responsibility. Um, and uh, coached me along the way. And it was on his recommendation that I went to culinary school. And, um, and so that's how I got my start in the industry. Uh, you know, I just so distinctly remember my first three years at Dunkin' Donuts. I was a sophomore in high school. And by the time I was a senior, still engaged in high school, still playing sports, he allowed me to write schedules and learn how to bake donuts and, and learn how to work equipment. 
and um, and I look back on that with fond memories. You know, Chip, my, my big break was getting um, brought into a uh, Senate office on Capitol Hill as an unpaid intern uh, who was uh, brought in to slice open the mail when the mail came five times a day on Capitol Hill. But it's it's as a result of it, and it, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. One thing led to another. Uh, I've, I've never been able to uh, say no to somebody that wants to intern or get started uh, in uh, our work. And I'm, I have a feeling you're probably the same way with young people. You probably recognize a lot of young people who, if they can get that one break, that can change their life. That's exactly right. It's, it's that one break. Uh, it's a, the one conversation. It's a leader's ability to, to have a cup of coffee with what I describe as the next generational leaders, um, which is so important. And I was blessed to have that gentleman at Dunkin' Donuts give me that one break and give me that mentoring. Uh, so after that, you've had a lot of experience like we uh, talked about, whether it's Darden or, or Carlson Restaurant Group or Legal Seafoods. And then uh, you get to the, the point in your career where Danny Meyer says, uh, Chip, you're the guy that I need to run this whole enterprise and take it to the next level. Did that just, or are you pinching yourself? Did that feel like a dream job? It it. it did and it still does. I have said on numerous occasions, professionally, I've never been happier. And so when when an individual, in this case me, when you get to this point after 35 years, 34 years of being in the industry, and you can proudly say that professionally you've never been happier, that really speaks to the culture and how uh, this is a, a unique and special place to be. Um, but I, I will share that... Um, you know, I had taken 16 or 17 months after I left my uh, last employment and, and I had worked for Red Lobster for a number of years. And I took 14 or 15 months off. And as I decided to get back into the work, um, the workplace, if you will, I was interviewing with a number of companies. And I get, I'll never forget the phone call that came from a USHG board member that said, and I, it, quote unquote, Danny Meyer would like to talk to you. And so I, I'm smiling now. I hung up the phone and I went downstairs to tell my wife and three, uh, almost three years um, to the day, um, you know, I'm here and, and happy. And what was the, you know, when I think about uh, Danny Meyer's organization, Union Square Hospitality Group, which I, I know reasonably well, Danny was on our board for about 20 years before um, term limits required him to leave. But I think of an organization with a really strong culture. And I'm just curious uh, what was the hardest part for you of coming into an organization with such a well-defined culture as the new leader? I think the hardest part for for me and any leader is just um, coming in and and trying to remove any perceptions that the organization and the people may have about me. Since more recently, I came from a very large chain, right? And so USHG, where we have specialty restaurants, uh, they're chef driven, we have an entrepreneurial spirit. And so I had to find a way fairly quickly to build trust and credibility to say, while I have chain experience, I had no intentions of turning this into a cookie cutter chain enterprise. Um, and so that was probably, you know, the, the number one challenge I think that I faced. So almost kind of had to rebut that, you know, potential presumption that, that that's what you were about. You know, when I when I interview people uh, for roles that share our strength, 
are applying for jobs, one of the questions I always ask at the end is, what is the greatest misperception that people have about you? Which is such a revealing, the answer is always revealing in so many ways because it's, you know, they've got to kind of both state the misperception and then they're partly guessing at the misperception. And uh, sounds like you were able to identify one of those that, you know, possibly uh, existed for you. Uh, one of the challenges we have is we're, we're very results oriented. We're very metric driven. Uh, the task of ending childhood hunger is so large, uh, obviously, and so much greater than any one organization can do on its own that, uh, that you know, we often find ourselves in the position of as well as our team has done. And we have an amazing team. I think, you know, put them up against anybody. We get great results. But at the end of the day, they're not enough. <laughs> you know, they're not, you know, we're not really solving the problem at that level. Um, and it, it's one of those, you know, kind of uh, really challenging situations where good is not good enough. Um, and, and we have to be more than that. And obviously, we don't want to discourage our team. Uh, but when we look about where we are against the goal of actually ending childhood hunger, we still have such a long way to go. And I feel like that's our unique leadership challenge. Uh, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts about how to manage that, because it, it literally is a real-time challenge for us. Well, I think, you know, one of the responsibilities of any leader is to ensure that he or she is conveying the realities of the situation as well as inspiring hope. And you, you have to do those at the same time. And so as you were articulating the, the realities of your business, is, it's, it's a goal, it feels like, that that is never ending, right? You get to the five yard line, but it feels like all of a sudden you're close to a touchdown ending hunger and it, and it gets extended out. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, it, acknowledging that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think that's important. Um, while at the same time of celebrating those wins, when you get that and, and Billy, I know that you and your team do that of celebrating the wins with your with your team, inspiring that hope to ensure that they keep moving there. Um, and the, the last thing I've spent a lot of time here, my almost three years here, spent a lot of time talking about the importance of collaboration. Um, and, you know, want, no one individual can move an enterprise forward, right? And so for us, it's the collaborative work that the home office has to have with our chefs and GMs. It's a collaborative work that we have to do um, with city officials and government um, to re remove any barriers related to the pandemic, whatever the case may be. And how do we collaborate, thirdly, with our vendors? And I found that the more uh, I elevate the notion and the importance of collaboration, the more people move toward that direction to help remove barriers and solve problems. You know, when you were talking about the, the number one is the people and making sure that the right people are in the right roles. Uh, I'm, I'm sure one of the uh, kind of things that you match up against that is the degree to which they'll uh, be a, a good fit or strengthen your culture. And we talked earlier about what a strong culture uh, your organization has. Is there, what do you think of as kind of the secret sauce to building that culture and maintaining it? Yeah, I would say, you know, I think about maintaining a strong, vibrant culture. There are four or five things that come to mind. Um, and it takes everyone. So number one is to, to build and maintain a vibrant culture, you have to have great communication skills. And that, that's that it's at every level with listening and speaking. And, and at times, great communication skills means being frank and candid. 
Uh, number two, to build a strong culture, I, I think of the importance of curiosity. I want to surround myself with inquisitive, curious people who want to learn. I'd say number three, uh, th this is combined, three is both optimism and kindness. Um, because people want to bring not just their, their physicalness, if you will, to, to a place. They want to bring their, their spirit and their heart um, and their head. And I think when you have a culture where there's optimism and kindness, uh, you're going to win. Two more. Uh, one is, uh, I'm sorry, number four is this really strong work ethic with, with accountability. And then lastly is empathy. And so for me, um, as I think about building, again, a strong and vibrant culture, those five things come to mind. We're in the midst of a national conversation about race and equity. And a lot of that conversation has taken place right in the heart of the restaurant and culinary community. Um, I'd love to know how over the last couple of years, and you, you, I think you've said you've been in the job three years now, which almost coincides with uh, an, an intensification of the conversation around race and equity. Um, what kind of, and you, you've been a leader uh, on this, uh, what kind of issues have you been dealing with and what, what do you think needs to be done? How, how should all of us be thinking about our role in this? Um, let's see here. I'd say a couple of things. And, and a thank you for bringing and broaching this topic, right? I, I think it's absolutely critical, uh, whether you're in uh, a public or private or a nonprofit organization, I think the more that we begin, that we can have this conversation, I think the more comfortable we're going to get around having conversations about diversity, inclusion, inclusion race, racism, sexism, um, so thank you for bringing this up. Um, you know, for, for me, I think some of the challenges is are, are dealing with the simple notion of this is an uncomfortable topic and we are all humans and we typically shy away from things that cause us pain and discomfort. And so for me, the first thing is, you know, this awareness and acknowledging that a conversation needs to take place. I would say then allowing people to speak uh, from their heart um, and having conversations about needs and fears and wants and expectations. When um, George Floyd was murdered, um, we at USHG, led by Danny, we began to have uh, internal conversations about diversity and inclusion and biases. And um, what I will say, Billy, is a couple of things. One is I applaud Danny for saying to us, and he's also said it publicly, I need to become the chief diversity officer, which is a remarkable acknowledgement when you have the CEO and the entrepreneur saying, in order for us to gain traction, I need to become the chief diversity officer. Now, it's not on his business title you won't see that anywhere on our website, but basically what he's saying is, I'm going to make this a priority. Um, the second thing that he said um, was, we we're going to need help here, and we can't go down this journey by ourselves. And even though my president and COO is a African-American male, I can't make any assumptions that, that Chip 
um, knows all the answers. So we went out and we collaborated with a gentleman who's a Dallas-based um, um, entrepreneur and executive in this arena, Dr. James Pogue, who became our consultant and guide, guidance counselor, if you will, on all things diversity and inclusion. Uh, Billy, I will share with you and your listeners, internally, we, we began these really frank and often tearful conversations with our employees and chefs and leaders about race. And including myself, 70 leaders on a Zoom call, 100 leaders on a Zoom call, with me candidly breaking down because I have two young sons and a fear that I have is they're going to get pulled over and, um, and, and be mistreated by a police officer. And so we began these series of sessions called Name Aside. They were called Chat with Chip, Chats with Chip. And they were designed to be 60, 90 minutes discussions on diversity, inclusion, and biases. We did one on uh, race. We did one in Asian Pacific. And um, for me, I just want to keep the conversation going because I, I see a, a bright future. And are you, how do you, um, I guess, how do you manage raising expectations with meeting those expectations. Uh, it sounds like you've done a lot to really engage people. And I know one of the things that I consider uh, an industry gold standard is on your website, you list your very specific DEI goals and how you're going to hold yourself accountable. So to some degree, uh, and then and I've heard a lot of organizations say, we need to be doing what Union Square Hospitality Group is doing. And I think maybe Shake Shack has done the the same thing, if I if I'm remembering correctly. But in any case, uh, do, do you how, how do you manage kind of raised expectations with the the reality that these issues don't get solved overnight? Um, geez, that's a great question. I I don't know if I'm going to answer specifically that question. I was asked a similar question a little over a year ago, and and my response was, let's have less talk and just more action, right? I, I have this fundamental like DNA of Chip Wade and I just want to have a bias for action, right? I was at a conference and and I don't have all the answers, Billy. Danny, we, USHG, we don't have all the answers. And as part of this discussion, the, the moderator found out that of my five C-levels, uh, all of them are women and two of them are of Asian descent. And so the, somehow the question came around, well, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I don't, I don't understand the question. I just hire great people. Um, so I think executives just have to make up their mind and say, we're going to have less talk and we're just going to uh, have more action. On the material on our website, that was our way of our employees saying, we want to hold you, Chip, Danny, and the executive team accountable and let's publish this information so that we can look at it on a monthly or daily or quarterly basis. Because what we said is we want our workforce to look like the city of New York. And New York is, um, as the last time I looked, was the um, either second or first most diverse city in North America. And if that, in fact, is true, then our workforce has to look like the city of New York. 
you know, I was going to ask you for you personally, um, as a black man, is the in a leadership role that you're in, is there uh, more of a responsibility, kind of a burden on your shoulders on these issues, welcome or unwelcome? Do you do you feel that you're you're, you're kind of you're you're carrying something that you might not otherwise be carrying? If there is a burden, Billy, it's a burden that I welcome, right? I think I'm passionate about this topic. I believe in our industry specific, specifically, we're woefully underrepresented in, in women in key leadership positions, and that is the same for people of color. And so um, I relish the opportunity to collaborate, to learn. Um, you know, I've been... I've known Jerry Fernandez, who's been a mentor and a friend. He runs an organization called the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. It's a long name, but a powerful organization. Oh, yeah. I've known Jerry for a long time. Um, and that organization started with a group of industry, uh, at the time, mid-level executives. I was with TGI Fridays and Carlson at the time in Dallas. And our very first meeting was in Dallas. Um, and so there may have been one or two VPs in the room, but the vast majority were 35 or so mid-level executives saying, how do we, how do we create a movement, um, to move this issue around multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusion? And, um, Jerry's been a big brother and a mentor, and he's passionate about this topic as well. And so... I welcome the opportunity to push, make people uncomfortable. Um, and I, I, I want to share one statistic with you if I can. And, and um, I read this about four months ago. And that is in, in the history of Fortune 500 lists, um, there have only been 19 black CEOs out of 1,800. <laughs> so it's, it's a staggering number and the first publish of the Fortune 500 list came out in 1955. And over that period, there have only been 19 black CEOs um, over a 65 and a half year period. And so, you know, we, we can, as a society, do better, but it's going to require people like you to keep having these conversations, me to get comfortable being uncomfortable, I'll share one more statistic, and this is uh, today, right? In Fortune 500, this is the female side. There are only 41 women running Fortune 500 companies today, only 41. And, and, and so, you know, by my simplistic calculations, there should be um, 251 women running Fortune 500 companies. So we just need to look at the data, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, and take action. You know, uh, none of us have a crystal ball, but um, what, what's your own sense of, um, I don't know, where we'll be on this set of issues five years from now, 10 years from now? We've talked about it taking, you know, a long time to kind of create this type of societal change. Uh, you, you sound like an optimist by nature. Uh, I certainly am. Uh, where, where do you think you're heading? And where, where do you think we're heading and how long is it going to take us to get there? I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there, but I am remarkably optimistic about um, our ability, not naive, but I'm optimistic about America's ability to continue to move forward. 
what largely gives me this optimism, Bill, Billy, was being here in New York. And when you had the, um, the murder of George Floyd and you had the protests in the city, and the vast majority of them were healthy, vibrant um, protests, what I was able to see was the number of young adults, black and white and Hispanic, walking side by side, at times holding hands. Um, it gave me this sense of optimism. These 23-year-olds and 25-year-olds hanging posters and banners that 40 years ago were pre predominantly people of color, black men and women. And you fast forward in 2020, and at times 40% of the crowds, 35%, half the crowds, being young white men and women. And, and, and so that is partly the reason why I am optimistic. Uh, you know, one of the really uh, pleasant surprises I've had over the last uh, year or so was uh, asking you to join the Share Our Strength Board and you almost immediately saying yes, even though you were relatively new to the Union Square Hospitality Group, you had a ton going on obviously middle of a pandemic, you had your work cut out for you. Uh, but I subsequently came to learn that you were on the board of, you know, youth villages also, um, say a little bit just about your, both your kind of commitment to this work or your passion for it. And also how, how do you balance it with all of these other responsibilities? Um, my commitment to it, um, really stems from this notion of, um, wanting to be a servant leader. And um, that is a, a term that I was introduced to Billy well over 35 years ago. Uh, Robert Greenleaf uh, was, if you will, the, the grandfather of servant leadership. Um, I was, my, my mom influenced me, my grandparents influenced me long before I knew what a servant leader was. And so um, the origins come from that perspective. Um, the origins also come from the perspective of being raised um, by a single black mom um, who often held two and three jobs just to keep the household afloat uh, of really, um, you know, knowing the struggles that, that she went through. And there's this simple notion of people need a helping hand, right? And um, as I matured in my career, I have made the decision out of a heart to want to care and to give back. And so um, I think I was sharing a story with you that during my, my break, um, uh, during my break between Red Lobster and joining Union Square Hospitality Group, I, again, took 16 months off. I had this wonderful opportunity to cook and prepare food for some of the homeless people in, uh, in downtown Orlando. And I did this with a young man who was a member of the church that I was attending. And, and he was looking for volunteers and I raised my hand up and I wasn't really sure what I was getting into, Billy. And so once he shared with me, uh, we weren't going to a homeless shelter. We were cooking food in my kitchen and, and, and big pots and stews and soups and then putting it in my car. And then we were just driving through some of the ugliest sections of Orlando and feeding people out of the back of his truck and out of the back of my luxury car. From your kitchen. 
that it was cooked in my, in my, in wow. my kitchen. Wow. <laughs> and so all of a sudden you're having a conversation with a single mom or an elderly gentleman that fell on hard times. And when you look into the, the eyes of these individuals, um, you know, at times to no fault of their own, they found themselves in need. And I just I found a lot of joy by doing what we did. And and that is why I'm so passionate about youth villages and so passionate about share our strength. You know, I'm a huge fan of youth villages as well, but I can only speak to Union Square Hospitality Group's involvement with Share Our Strength. And it's been a, you know, close to a 30 year commitment and absolutely transformative of our organization. So thanks for keeping that alive. It's made a, a huge, huge difference. Absolutely. Um, but Chip, uh, the only thing that would be more fun than having this conversation with you would be having it at one of the Union Square Hospitality Group restaurants. What's the state of uh, the Union Square Hospitality Group business? Well, the state is uh, of our business is fantastic. Um, and despite the, the COVID, the pandemic and the shutdown, uh, we find ourselves in the position where we are have moved past simply surviving and now we're thriving. And so we have we talk about our business uh, in, from um, in terms of revenue from three really great buckets. One is we have a cool brand called Daily Provisions. Uh, we currently have four of those um, fine casual, as we call it, up and running here in Manhattan. Uh, the second bucket of revenue comes from our fine dining restaurants. Um, and then we have this really unique business called Union Square Events, which is a very large catering and event business. And so um, Union Square Hospitality Group and our restaurants and our businesses are um, trending in the right directions. We're starting to see some momentum build as a result of, you know, the city coming back and starting, you know, the economic engines that drive New York City are starting to come back. Well, that's encouraging. You don't hear the word uh, thriving uh, connected to many businesses today, restaurant industry or otherwise. I'm not surprised that the Union Square Hospitality Group is is one that is. Um, let's. Uh, we're running out of time. But let's talk about what's uh, what's next. What's new? What's exciting for Union Square Hospitality Group? You, you remarkably, uh, you opened up a restaurant just like maybe I don't know, what four to eight weeks ago. Ciciamo. That is correct. We have a restaurant called Ciciamo. Ciciamo. Um, Italian, northern Italian cuisine. We've been very fortunate to have two remarkable leaders. Um, Hillary Sterling is the executive chef and Megan Sullivan is our general manager. And, um, you know, we're very proud of the, the, the work that they and their teams have done. So a, a lot of um, accolades thus far. Um, it's been seven, eight weeks or so. The journey is not complete, um, but I've been delighted and surprised in the same around the same time period. We've opened uh, two more daily provisions. So we're going to end this fiscal year with, uh, with four, with the hopes of opening two or three more in, um, in 2022. Um, so that is giving us a lot of excitement. And then in, in, um, in our restaurants, we're starting to get near the finish line with regard to staffing and some of the issues that have plagued our industry you know, um, since the pandemic began, but we're starting to see more staff come into the city and into our restaurants, which is enabling us to 
begin opening up for business during lunch. And some of our restaurants today have been operating, you know, seven nights a week, but but closed Monday through Thursday for lunch. And so my excitement is around Chisiamo, the success at Daily Provisions, the success we're having at Union Square events, and then some of the staffing challenges are slowly starting to dissipate. Well, I can't wait to try Chisiamo. I'll tell you a quick story about Hillary Sterling that you may not know and how I got to know her. Um, you know, we do a 300-mile um, bike ride every year when there's not a pandemic going on to raise funds for our No Kid Hungry campaign. It's called Chef Cycle, and it's uh, 100 miles a day for three days. It's quite a, a feat of endurance, really, and uh, enormous climbs up the mountains of California. Um, I did it for five years, but uh, the very first or second year we did it, I was at uh, the restaurant where Hillary Sterling was the chef before you recruited her. I think it was called Vicks, and they had a large menu there. Uh, with a lot of items on it. And at the very bottom of the menu, uh, it was so small, it was almost like one of those union uh, label printers bugs that you see sometimes printed on something. There was a little image of a bicycle. Uh, I didn't know Hillary at all. I'd never met her. I had, actually hadn't heard of her. Uh, but I asked the, uh, the server, uh, I said, is, is the chef here? Why is there a bike on this menu? It seemed completely out of place to me. Uh, I said, is the chef a bike rider? Uh, and uh, the server said, yes, she is. Uh, and I said, well, can I get her email? So I emailed her and introduced myself, and she's a passionate bike rider. We recruited her to ride 300 miles. She raised a ton of money oh, for wow. uh, our No Kid Hungry campaign, and we rode alongside each other. Um, she was a formidable rider. Actually, I should say I tried to keep up with her. She was a stronger rider than I was. Um, and and I, I say this by way of warning because having met you a number of times, Chip, I see you're a pretty fit young fellow. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if one of your chefs is riding, you, you may have to ride with us someday. I may. Uh, first of all, I may have to step up. Thank you for uh, the, the compliment, including the young. Um, but yeah, Hillary is a remarkable leader. We're, we're blessed and fortunate to have her on board. And um, who knows, maybe I'll step up to the challenge and, and ride uh, the next time uh, we have one. You never know. And I just wanted you to know the kind of person that you've recruited in Hillary is just like an amazing person and obviously perfect for the culture of Union Square Hospitality Group. Uh, that's fantastic. Chip, thanks for taking time with us. This has been an enlightening conversation, as I knew it would be. I'm so admiring of your leadership, and uh, all of us at Share Our Strength are grateful that you've agreed to serve on our board. We have so much to to learn from you, um, and it's just really uh, it's been a treat to be able to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. I've enjoyed it. All the best to you and the entire team of, at Share Our Strengths. If you want to learn more about Chip Wade and Union Square Hospitality Group, and hear the other voices featured in our Rebuilding series please visit adpassionandstir.com. At our website, you'll find more Ad Passion and Stir episodes featuring leaders like former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, chef and entrepreneur Kwame Onwachi, BET founder Sheila Johnson, and John B. King, former U.S. Secretary of Education. And if you like this episode, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, share it with a friend, or rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive and Joanna Weber of Papanaw with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. That includes Debbie Shore, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of how others are sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks for listening.